Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I'm joined by the brilliant Barnaby Rain. We talk about a recent essay that he had in the latest issue of Salvage magazine, which analyzes Russia's invasion of Ukraine through the lens of rising nationalism that has been a feature of world politics, particularly over the last kind of 10 years or so since the financial crisis of 2008. And we discuss this kind of world historic crisis of capitalism and how it is giving rise to and fueling the growth of uh, nationalist and kind of neo-fascist movements all over the world, what that means for world politics and how the left should respond. As always, please remember to share the episode on social media. We are at A World to Win Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And please do support us on Patreon. We need your support to continue to bring you brilliant content like this episode. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There'll be a link in the description to this episode. Now a word from our sponsor. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. Every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between 6 or 12 books a year. Plus author events and discounts from publishers including Pluto Press and Tribune Magazine. I personally receive books from the Left Book Club and I find it a really great way to expand my reading beyond the kind of range of books I would ordinarily choose myself. And a World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE, all in caps, at checkout. Hello, everyone. I am here with Barnaby Rain in person, no less. And we are here to discuss this absolutely fantastic long essay that basically tries to kind of situate the conflict in Ukraine alongside the general increasing nationalist fervor that we're seeing all over the world in a much longer historical framework and also suggest how this is going to impact world politics and how like the left should respond to this moment. And recently, we've had a pretty interesting result in France, which can kind of, you know, we can use your essay to kind of read into, I suppose. Um, Marine Le Pen winning 42% of votes in that second round of the election. Obviously, Mélenchon did relatively well before that. And there were lots of people who simply didn't turn out. But nonetheless, seemingly a pretty emphatic um you know, she wanted to frame it as an emphatic victory for her kind of neo-fascist, nationalistic, xenophobic movement. And a big theme in this election was, and perhaps why she didn't do as well as she could have, was Le Pen's previous proximity to Putin. And that obviously figured quite significantly in the campaign with Macron pitching himself as the kind of liberal internationalist, the defender of the kind of liberal world order, and Le Pen focusing on cost of living issues and trying to downplay her proximity to Putin. So what can we learn from this election, from the campaign, and from the way that these candidates were talking about each other and and pitching themselves to the electorate? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, it's it's great to be here. I'm honoured to be the first in-person uh, uh, discussant, and I'm very delighted that Actually, you want you're to... not the first. The first was Jeremy Corbyn. 
I'm we did that honored. in person. I'm, I'm honored <laughs> to be second only to Jeremy Corbyn. I'm even more honored by my, my proximity to Jeremy Corbyn in this way, a few others. So, yeah, thank you so much. And I'm very glad that you want to talk about this essay, which, you know, it's not, it's not just me. It's from this collective. I'm part of the Salvage Collective, where we publish a journal twice a year. And every time we publish a journal, there's a perspectives essay from the collective about understanding our moment. And, and this is the one... So we've had one about Palestine, one about Afghanistan, and, and now Ukraine. And these are the kind of hinges uh, through which to think about changing moments in, in world politics. So let's start with France. Very striking that Macron repeatedly in the presidential debate before the runoff election accused Le Pen of being uh, effectively a puppet. He said she was dependent, I think was his word, on Russia. So here's a striking kind of difference to think about. 20 years ago, Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, made it through to the runoff final round of the French presidential election. Jacques Chirac, the centre-right, right-wing French president, refused to debate Le Pen. He said he wouldn't debate intolerance. And he went on to win 80% of the vote. Le Pen got 20%. Now, 20 years later, that far-right vote has doubled. Le Pen Jr. is getting 40% of the vote. And Macron not only debates her, he debated her last time and it was seen as a kind of rout. Macron did very well in the debate, was the consensus. This time, though, he debated her just as another politician. He didn't even use terms like far right, let alone fascist, in the debate itself. One central line he did use to attack her was her claim that she was insufficiently loyal to France, that she was the puppet of a foreign power. So here you have a situation where 20 years ago, no one would have attacked the National Front as it then was for being insufficiently nationalist. The claim was that they were excessively nationalist in ways that were very dangerous for French Muslims, for French Jews, for French leftists and trade, you know, all kinds of people attacked by the traditions of, of, of fascism that the Front National was founded after the Algerian war to try to revive and recover. Now, by contrast, the liberal centre attacks the far right by making the claim that it's insufficiently loyal to the nation, that it's the servant of a foreign power. This isn't entirely new. But I think it's telling, because I think a lot is lost in that move. I think it's telling that the political binary that we face today is not one between a liberal open centre and dangerous nationalist populists, which is the story we've been told for many years. It's the story that accompanied the Brexit vote in Britain, for example. Today in Britain, you have enthusiastic Remainers as was, lining up behind Boris Johnson. People who a couple of years ago told us Boris Johnson was almost a fascist when he was proroguing Parliament, lining up behind Boris Johnson to prosecute an aggressive clash with Russia, uh, furious rhetoric about Russia, Keir Starmer in, in, in Parliament, the second referendum fan uh, who attacked Boris Johnson for promoting a divorce with the European Union. Now they're all singing from the same hymn sheet in wanting very aggressive at attacks, uh, not military attacks, but various kinds of attacks on Russia. So... The liberal centre, it turns out, has heavy resources of nationalism in it. And in a world order which is swiftly moving into a kind of rival chauvinisms, a world order in which in Russia it's clear that America's an absolute enemy and in America it's clear that Russia's an absolute enemy, these kinds of dangerous nationalisms are not limited to the far right. And they will have rippling effects in how we talk about borders and migration. They have rippling effects when Ukrainian refugees are given homes in a dodgy, ill-prepared scheme, one should say, uh, well, Britain is to be cleansed of all other refugees, effectively, um, uh, who will be sent to Rwanda. So these things have rippling effects on our politics. And it's not just pushed by the far right. It's a language of nationalism that's very dangerous and pushed by the centre too. Nevertheless, this idea of a kind of open, enlightened, liberal West versus a kind of despotic East, a 
binary, which obviously has a very, very long history, does seem to have been beneficial to a greater or lesser extent to liberals. And certainly, you know, I've seen people arguing now that the re-emergence of this kind of clash of civilizations moment will be the boon that liberals have been waiting for for mm-hmm. quite some time, seeing as they have no answers to the real kind of material issues that mm-hmm. most people are facing. And at the same time, if, as I'm going to ask you now, this is the case, if it is the case that the um, far right globally or nationalists globally are all going to line themselves up behind Putin uncritically, seeing him as the kind of, you know, the um, heroic figure who is standing up for Mother Russia, standing up for the nation and in whose footsteps they shall try and follow. We saw this in the US where a bunch of, you know, very far right conservatives uh, at that conference, I can't remember which conference it was. The America First. The America First conference. Yeah, exactly. We're cheering on, uh, on announcement of this election. We know that Le Pen has with Putin, various leaders, Orban, have to a greater or lesser extent some links with Putin or at least refraining from kind of criticising him much more overtly. The same in India. There are lots of links clearly between Putin and and far-right regimes all over the world. Is that going to be a threat to the kind of coherence of the far-right in this moment? And is that kind of enlightened, liberal, rules-based international world order narrative going to be a boon for for liberals as they think that it might be? Uh, I think that the misunderstanding endemic here is failing to see the degree to which both blocks, both the uh, Putinist language and the NATO language uh, function to push a civilizational politics, a politics of a clash of civilizations, which coheres nationalistic, chauvinistic politics on both sides. So one of the purest statements of the misery of our moment is that Donbass in eastern Ukraine is, I think, the first conflict in human history where militias on both sides are fighting under the banner of the swastika. You have neo-Nazis, the Azov Battalion, integrated in November 2014 into the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, Their founder said the mission was to lead the white race of the world in a campaign against the Semite-led Untermenschen. And we can talk more about the this is Nazi language, about subhumans. We can talk more about the uh, uh, racial politics of Eastern European nationalism, of Ukrainian nationalism, that slogan, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, which now falls from the lips of Boris Johnson, Ursula von der Leyen, is the same kind of slogan that was brandished against my family members when they were Jews in Ukraine, unwelcome and, and not identified as, as, as pure Ukrainians. So there's a, a civilizational politics that associates anti-Russianism with uh, the supremacy of the West against the Slavic uh, uh, when the Guardian covered the horrific uh, Russian massacre at Bucha, mm. the, the one word was barbarian. Um, so there's a racialized language for talking about, as, as Vladimir Zelensky says when he encourages volunteers to come to Ukraine, come to defend Europe and our common civilizational values. This is a language uh, which historically in Ukraine allowed, in the ferment of the Russian Revolution in 1918, white uh, counter-revolutionary armies to massacre 100,000 Jews in pogroms because Jews were identified as the internal other where Russia was the external other for this civilizational politics. And so yet got, this is what Putin himself is saying when he says, I'm going in there to denazify. Right, right. so 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 the, 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 the ludicrousness of that is that this is simply a mirror, that this mm. stuff exists on both sides. So you've got lots of far-right, the far-right in Europe traditionally admiring Putin. Uh, Marine Le Pen called him a defender of uh, Christian civilization. Eric Zemmour, 
Le Pen's even more Islamophobic rival promised to be a French Putin. In Bulgaria, Ataka, the neo-Nazi party, went to Moscow to celebrate Putin's 60th birthday. Jobbik, the Hungarian fascists, were invited to Moscow to the, to the Duma. The Freedom Party in Austria, a party established by veterans of, neo, of Nazism, has now formal links with United Russia, the, the ruling party in Russia, and they, they, they crystallised those links and celebrated a war on migration. So you have this hard-right authoritarian populism, uh, civilizational politics, will to rebuild a traditional Russian empire with its nasty racialized core, all that stuff coming out of Russia. And then you have in the West, the language of uh, Western civilization enlightened, which has been wielded in the last couple of decades against the Muslim world, mm. these backward people, uncivilized with their, with their burqas. So you have a French polity in which without Le Pen getting in there, sections of the French left support a ban on burqas because Muslims symbolize the backward uncivilized savages. And now Russia symbolizes the backward uncivilized savages in the coming period. I think China increasingly will mm. be the uncivilized and, and so on. So the, 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 thing, the thing to recognize is that both camps now are pushing increasingly a politics of nationalistic clash of civilizations, a language which is inimical to a politics of social justice because it's a politics of national blocs workers in London have more in common mm. with bosses in London is this claim than they do with any workers in Russia um, and when workers in London on the underground go on strike they're accused of being in league with Putin in a kind of right wing attack piece in the, in the right wing press um, so this is a politics of nationalism which, which risks strangling um, any kind of politics of solidarity of freedom uh, because instead it's a politics of loyalty it's to your nation also, state exactly. on it's both a sides of, it's dangerous of identification with not just the nation but increasingly the state That's right. as well That's right. um, and you see this you know, in the UK when, um, I don't, the conversation we're having about empire, right? The idea that it would be ridiculous or kind of too overly woke to criticise the actions of the British Empire, the, action, the historic actions of the British state. You see it in Russia, right, with um, the, you know, often left-wing or anarchist people who are out there protesting against the war being cheered on by people, you know, liberals in the West, who if those same protesters were out on the street here protesting against a war being undertaken by our state would be denigrated. Mm -hmm. So there is this thing. And to what extent is this, I'm interested in this, is this novel, this identification with the state itself, with the actions of the state, with state policy, as opposed to this idea of the nation and, uh, I don't know, nation as ethnic group or nation as, you know, a Mm -hmm. historic culture or whatever. Um, And how does that change the terms of the debate because often and you've spoken about this as well we see on in inverted commas the left this idea of yes we should be able to identify with the state but also the state is something that could do nice things for you and this is kind of what marine le pen was pushing in in this election so i mean yeah like to what extent this novel this like specific identification with the state and are we on the left in danger of actually reinforcing that narrative if we don't push for this kind of neither Moscow nor Washington, you know, you have more in co- a working class person in London has more in common with a working class person anywhere else in the world than they do with bosses in their own country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a very striking thing about Marine Le Pen's concession speech uh, when she lost the presidential election was in fiery tones, she promised we will be the resistance to Macron when he tries to raise the pension age, not we will be the resistance to Macron when he floods the country with immigrants, though of course she means that too and says it too. So the dangerous situation we now face is a political binary where 20 years ago, when a French conservative faced off against a French fascist, it was understood that this was a binary between mainstream French values, even if they included moderate right and moderate left, against 
violently anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, and so on, a uh, fascist threat. Now, the choice is between two forms of right-wing politics, a neoliberal form under Emmanuel Macron, who wants to privatise and make people work longer and cut the social safety net and so on, while also pushing a nationalistic logic of confrontation that praises empire. You know, Macron has been involved in an actively neo-colonial war in Mali, involved in talking about how marvellous the French empire was historically, presides over a state that does ban the burqa, um, you know, polices Muslim... Uh, address while privatizing things. And then on the other side, yes, a more aggressively nationalistic politics that also advertises itself as protecting the social safety net, protecting working class living standards. And it's attacked by the center, not for being too nationalistic, because it is more aggressively racist and so on, but for being in league with Russia. So we have a a, a politics in which loyalty to the nation state is taken for granted. And the choice, therefore, is whether you want to redistribute a little bit within the structures of that very violent, aggressive nation state, which is building barbed wire borders to keep out the leagues of climate refugees, or whether you want to build the barbed wire borders and also privatise some industries. And if that's the political choice, the left is really stuck. And what we can't do is try to play into that choice. So try to imagine that, and this is the strategy of Keir Starmer's Labour Party in Britain, for example. So, So try to hope that if you accede to all of the nationalist panics, whether they are about Russia in Ukraine, or about not being seen to support Palestinians, or not being seen to support refugees when they're deported to Rwanda, you only complain it's too expensive. The idea that if we accede to all these nationalist panics, then there might be space to open up some talk about the economy. Um, These things aren't so independent of each other, um, because nationalism posits a kind of vertical community, a set of vertical loyalties to the nation, to the crown. Keir Starmer's attack on Boris Johnson partying was that he wasn't sufficiently respectful to Prince Philip. When you posit these kind of vertical communities, you obliterate the possibility of those horizontal solidarities, those among the oppressed and exploited of the world. Um, and you grew great damage to left politics and you instead uh, feed into right-wing moral panics. As long as immigration is a central issue on the doorstep, the left is going to do worse than the right. And so we, we risk entering a period in which the experience of all kinds of capitalist crises, the experience of rising inflation, the experience experience of stagnant productivity, the experience, therefore, of falling real pay. These things are articulated not in the language of class and certainly not in the in a structural language of capital accumulation being uh, a problem for human flourishing, uh, while capital accumulation is also destroying the planet. Instead, each of these things is articulated through a language of nationalist panic. Oh, dear, we face problems. We better build the walls higher, protect our block. We face problems of climate devastation and access to, to resources if, uh, if we're not going to get Russian oil. So we must, in the United States, do more domestic hydrocarbon extraction. We must, uh, you know, so this is a kind of policing of the boundaries of um, of the nation uh, in ways that offer people limited protection uh, through nationalism and chauvinism. This point that we're living in this kind of very furtive moment in world history where you have, yes, the emergence of this conflict and the kind of civilizational narratives that go along with it, but also a dramatic increase in inflation, which is going to have a severe impact on people's living standards, especially in parts of the world, i.e. most of the world where the labor movement has been decimated and therefore is going to struggle to demand wage increases in line with inflation, as well as um, much of those inflationary pressures being driven by fuel costs mm-hmm. and a right that is now very willing to say, perhaps more so than it would have been a few years ago, the reason that those energy price rises are happening is because we've focused too much on decarbonisation and we are, we're not extracting enough oil. The um, overlaps between then a far right that can say we need to protect the nation, we need to push for cost of living increases and potentially align with then elements of the labour movement. We need to push for more investment in fossil fuels. 
and also build higher walls to stop refugees from entering. Often there, there has been historically this kind of assumption on the left, the lazy assumption that moments of crises are moments when kind of class dynamics become more mm-hmm. obvious and therefore it becomes easier to build these class coalitions. If anything, the conflagration that emerges from mm-hmm. all of those different things happening at the same time benefits the far right, benefits xenophobes, fascists. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of people who are now saying, well, this historical moment is comparable to the 1930s or something similar. You have a different take on what this historical moment is comparable to. And I also want you to talk about, so what? where are we? Mm-hmm. What is the, the best analogy mm-hmm. historically? And um, how easy is it going to be for nationalists to literally link all of those things up together and actually reverse you know what little progress there has been made on climate on migration very little mm-hmm. progress there to speak of but that sort of thing mm-hmm. lots of questions there yeah one thing that this essay is concerned with is the appearance the selective appearance of historical analogies most of which are early 20th century analogies or mid 20th century analogies uh, we hear a lot about the 1930s always in our politics as a kind of scary uh, uh, spectre now, where a few years ago it was a language of crisis and rising fascism domestically, now it's a geopolitical language, Putin is Hitler. And the convenient thing about that analogy is its kind of Manichaean simplicity, good versus evil, moralism. Everyone, whatever their politics, should just unite against Putin because he's Hitler and that's, he's the worst thing ever. On the left, by contrast, there are, there's talk of World War I instead of an analogy, this inter-imperialist clash with no simple good guys. More obvious analogies might be to Russia invading Hungary in 1956, the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia in, in 1968. I think none of these are right for all kinds of reasons that we that we talk about in, in in the essay, why they might be misleading. I think the really telling analogy that's missing is to the early 1970s. The, 19, the early 1970s is, I think, an important moment of which to remind ourselves because this was the transition to the world we now call neoliberal. And it was a transition that began with a crisis at the level of imperialism. So if I'm talking about the difficulty of trying to disentangle the economic from the geopolitical and the danger of people on the left thinking they can talk about one without talking about the other, or that they can accede to panics in the geopolitical sphere and still have an economic radicalism, or they can pretend that panics in the geopolitical sphere are kind of innocent, that that, that if you're in Russia and people are talking about the rights of Russian speakers in Donbass, that's just an innocent good thing because those rights have been attacked. Or if you're in the West and people are talking about Ukrainians being attacked, that's just an innocent good thing because those people have been attacked. There's a naivety in not realising the civilizational politics uh, that this is involved in. Well, well, look to the 1970s. The moment that sparked the crisis for the post-war order was the oil crisis, a crisis in access to natural resources key to the reproduction of capitalism everywhere, oil, sparked by the OPEC oil boycott of allies of Israel um, after the, the, the defeat of attempts to, to, to bring down Israel militarily in four wars after 73. So, so a geopolitical crisis of post-colonial states trying to assert their power against an old imperial world order was the trigger for then economic crisis all over the West and for a neoliberal counter-revolution, which took the form not only of a reassertion of the power of capital over labour, but also the reassertion of all kinds of imperial hierarchies, which recent work by Quinn Slobodian, by Adam Getachew, there's recent good work on on, on research on on connecting the neoliberal counter-revolution against labour, or maybe these things aren't connected enough, but understanding 
the neoliberal counter-revolution has also an attempt to design a new legal and policy architecture for keeping in check the former colonized uh, and defeating things like the new international economic order. So these things go hand in hand. And now again, we are in a period where various forms of economic politics are articulated together with various forms of nationalist politics on, on both sides of the of the divide. There's another thing in there as well. There's another element of that comparison, which is, so you've got the, the economic element, you've got the nationalist element. These obviously can't be disaggregated from one another. But increasingly, over the last 50 years, let's say, the other plane that we've had to resort to in order to understand most of what's been going on in world politics is just energy. And I mean, you could look at that, obviously, over the last several hundred years, you can look at, you know, Andreas Malm's work on this or whatever. But increasingly, that is becoming a really, you know, central force and something that we need to grapple with to be able to understand much of what's going on. But uh, that is both separate to the economic and the cultural and also incredibly interlinked with with all of those things. So the oil crisis, obviously... Um, creates that those two the first oil price spike in 1973 and then another one in 1979 which is used basically to ultimately used to destroy the labor movement because the labor movement bargains for wage increases in line with inflation driven by this energy crisis and is then blamed for causing that inflation um, which is driven back to those kind of geopolitical issues that you've mentioned there labor has been beaten back so much mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. over the last 40 years it's hard to see how Labour could be beaten back even more during this crisis, but I mean, I'm sure that there are ways that we that 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 can and would be um, done. One thing that we have seen some progress on is some sort of acceptance generally that we need to do something to tackle climate breakdown, and that requires us to, well, it requires some people to make tough decisions about consumption and investment and whatever. Generally, not the people who are telling everyone else that they need to make tough decisions. There is clearly this the potential in this moment that we could actually see the pendulum swing all the way back. So literally a return to kind of just fossil capital, not a kind of eco-fascism, which is what many people have been warning about for a while, which is we accept climate change is, is happening. It's bad. We need to do something about it. But also we need to put up some walls to keep out refugees. But actually just no, we need fossil fuels. We cannot survive our culture cannot survive without fossil fuels. And that almost becomes linked in then to the Western civilization itself. How dangerous is this moment for the planet? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the, the, the framing danger, the foundational danger, is the fundamental difference between our moment and the early 1970s. The transition to neoliberalism was not, as it's often narrated, a counter-revolution against the post-war Keynesian Fordist world order. It was, in fact, the attempt to save Keynesianism from itself, so to speak. It was... Uh, the attempt to save that post-war world order that Keynes had attempted to chart in the Bretton Woods project, to save some kind of post-war order from the radicals all over the world who threatened to bring down Western civilization. And there was an emancipatory pole, if you like. There was a there was a, a, a coalition, conscious or not, of people all over the world in militant trade unions going on strike for higher pay and also raising collections to support the struggles of people in Vietnam and people in Palestine and people in South Africa and people all over South America, mm-hmm. um, a huge labor movement solidarity in Britain of, of very admirable with, with uh, Chile after the, after the coup in Chile, for example. So there was a, a, another world order uh, in the offing, embryonic, which was crushed in that neoliberal counter-revolution with tanks and torture in Chile and with police batons in mines in Britain. Um, and it was crushed all over the world. 
we do not now live in a world of the new international economic order, mm-hmm. uh, post-colonial states presenting a plan for a more egalitarian world economy. Instead, we have India, as you said, run by Narendra Modi, not run by people who at least nominally claim to be socialists. And that's very worrying for the climate front. And it's worrying. You, you see that moment in the recent COP climate conferences where the, the heroes are people at the margins. So you have Mohammed Nasheed, the then president or prime minister of the Maldives, emerging as a hero in the Paris climate conference saying, our island's going to go underwater. You have Mia Motley from Barbados emerging as a hero at the recent Glasgow conference. Uh, small island nations who are, yes, building links with China and, and, and you know, d- defending the fact that they, they're attacked for doing so in the West. And they say, you know, when, when Britain comes, we get a lecture. When China comes, we get a hospital. So mm-hmm. these, these inter-imperialist blocs, uh, sometimes one can, can seem to offer a better deal than others. But there isn't a widespread, broad-based mass block globally um, for saving our lives and for freedom. Some and people... climate, climate should provide the basis for building yeah. one because climate should provide the base for a revived anti-colonial internationalism mm. that says for profits of a few people in London and New York, people in Dhaka and people in the Caribbean are going to go underwater. And so this should be the language of a kind of subaltern radical politics saving everyone's lives, which then wants to link up with people who need green jobs in the West as well and who are also being fucked over by uh, uh, the destruction of the planet. Sorry for swearing. Um, <laughs> so it should, be, it should be a basis for something good. Yeah. But this moment instead of rising inter-imperialist nationalist chauvinism in both blocks, tying the economic demands for better pensions and better pay to the defense of the nation state so that you articulate your economic demands, not as we want to live in conditions of freedom and security for everyone, but as I want to defend my little pocket of serenity and peace from a world that's going up in flames. That's the connection between I want better pensions if I'm Marine Le Pen and nationalism. It's all one language. And that Some kind of language, sorry, that it's language okay. is very dangerous. No, no, it's good. Um, some people are going to say, actually, that the, the, the moment that we find ourselves in presents a, an opportunity to build that movement uh, because we have moved from a unipolar world order to a bipolar world order. And the bifurcation of the world economy, which, as we're seeing with the impact of sanctions right now, which is giving rise to, well, not giving rise to kind of consolidating the emergence of two separate trading blocks, one dominated by Russia, China, um, with various different links to other states in the global south, um, and in which you are increasingly seeing trade taking place in currencies other than dollars, which presents a real threat to the dominance of the US globally. And the other, the liberal international rules-based world order led by the US and Europe, Australia, Canada, whatever, um, with some links to loyal clientist states in other parts of the world. That presents an opportunity because if the West doesn't give you aid to build, you know, the things that you need to mitigate the impact of climate breakdown, then you can get it from the East. And if you can get it from the East, then the West realizes that it needs to be more generous. And you get this kind of ratcheting up effect that in some parts of the world you saw during the Cold War. In other parts of the world, of course, you didn't see that. You saw the resort to just violence and and regime change and, you know, all sorts of horrendous interventions that resulted in the deaths of millions of people. So... Is this an opportunity? Is it a threat? Is it what we make of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very important question. There is a, a a broader realignment. And this is, again, an example of why we wrote this essay to say what's happening in Ukraine is really just a symptom and a symbol of something much bigger, which isn't to demean the horrific suffering of the people of Ukraine. Uh, it's to say there's more horrific suffering on the way. You see the, the pieces moving on the chessboard already. Britain pays a long-demanded debt to Iran to get the release of British nationals. And it's the United States now pushing to reopen the JCPOA negotiations process with Iran, while American officials travel to Venezuela and uh, re 
degrade the Venezuelan state in their official calculus uh, from something authoritarian to a managed democracy mm. or something. These countries like Venezuela and Iran that are important for energy supplies, which once could be easily castigated and ruled out of the rules-based international order, so-called. Now uh, America starts to think that perhaps uh, it needs to rethink how it relates to them because there's an inter-imperialist clash and it maybe can't afford to lose them to a Chinese bloc. So so there will be changes, as you suggest. When neither pole in that inter-imperialist confrontation is committed to anything even nominally progressive, when they're both pushing a politics of a kind of authoritarianism and national chauvinism, the opportunities, though they may develop, won't develop in any kind of systematic way. Mm. Um, uh, It's not necessarily the case that anything is better than US unipolar hegemony. And one way in which going back into the past is a useful thing to do is to remember that the term imperialism in its early 20th century use on the left described not the behavior of an individual state, it described a system into which all powerful states, all regional powers were locked. Um, That is to say, everyone acted in aggression towards everyone else, understanding that aggression as a kind of preemptive self-defense. Well, if I don't act in aggression to you, uh, you'll act in aggression to me. So it's a structure constraining the choices of agents. Imperialism isn't just one power acting aggressively all over the world. And post-1945, especially, the left has come to talk about imperialism in that way, that US-centric way. Mm. Multipolarity, as you say, presents opportunities. But if it means an increasingly nationalistically determined politics all around the world, it also presents grave dangers. It's not just a good thing. So there's some accusations that those on the left as you've kind of alluded to there, have fallen into this trap, really, of framing our demands, framing our movement in this clash of civilizations terms, but flipping it the other way around. So this is the kind of West-splaining argument, the idea that um, anything bad that happens in the rest of the world, anything bad that is done in the rest of the world is the result of Western aggression towards the people who are doing the bad thing. And there have been plenty of kind of liberals who would otherwise see themselves as as relatively progressive who've said that this is what is coming out on the left today. Now, clearly, by any stretch of the imagination, by any metric whatsoever, support for Putin on the left is confined to like a tiny minority of very old, weird or young, weird people who are kind of still living in a world that has long since disappeared, where Russia is the symbol of everything that is kind of good and anti-American and and therefore requires our unflinching support. But there is a block, I suppose, and within it some elements of perhaps the American left, particularly also progressives in many other parts of the world that do basically think that that support for Russia can be justified based on American hypocrisy or the fact that this potentially undermines the West and its liberal rules-based world order, as we've said many times over. To what extent is this a thing? And to what extent is it a very bad thing? Hmm. Yeah, firstly, we should we shouldn't. I mean, we keep using it. We shouldn't use this term "liberal rules." I know. I always use it. I I'm using it as like a joke. I don't yeah. know if people actually yeah, yeah, understand yeah. that. I mean, it's, it's like inverted commas. You know, uh, it's better than saying, like, the West. I saw Condoleezza Rice interviewed on American television mm. in which the interviewer, American interviewer, with a straight face, said, isn't Putin a war criminal because he's violating the national sovereignty of another country? I mean, <laughs> she could have continued violating the UN Security Council mm. uh, resolutions. Uh, um, all of these were things that Condoleezza Rice did uh, in Iraq. So it, it shows you the power of ideology that people can still use terms like rules-based with a straight face after 
the United States and Britain and others chose to disregard the UN Security Council, invade a country, kill perhaps a million people. We saw something on, I I, I can't remember what show it was on, but basically uh, this panel, I think it was someone from the New York Times, someone from BBC saying uh, weapons of mass destruction was not a good example of fake news. So it's like these terms are all defined based on how, you know, the West, the good guys decide to define it. Yeah, and and it becomes narrower than the West. Mm. It becomes a a group of journalists at The Guardian and BBC um, uh, who who swallowed in horror the claim that uh, we were 45 minutes from destruction on the headline of, I think, Mm. The Evening Standard and sneered at the claim that Britain could get £350 million a week uh, for the NHS if we left the European Union. And so one such claim, equally, people were horrified when judges appeared on the front of the Daily Mail in Britain as the enemies of the people. But when minors were the enemy within under Thatcher, or when Muslims were a fifth column with CCTV cameras set up in Muslim areas to surveil them under Blair, Mm. uh, this worried Western liberal opinion less. Why? Because the people who are worried, frankly, have dinner parties with judges and don't have dinner parties with minors or probably with Muslims. So, uh, yeah, the the whole language of this uh, rules-based international order is just part of a broader rhetoric of counterposing a liberal mainstream to a populist threat and failing to see all of the ways in which that liberal mainstream has produced and reinforced uh, the same kinds of nationalist language, which in much more extreme and damaging and awful form, the far right then comes along and pushes. On the stuff about sympathy with with Russia and and West-splaining, I mean, there's a strangeness to, to, to the language of, of Westplaining on the one hand, because that this claim that the Western left is too concerned with, uh, with making the West responsible for everything. Because, of course, for those of us who are citizens of Western countries, the overwhelming danger which we face in the domestic politics in which we can be involved is a resurgent nationalism just as it is mm. for Russians. So just as we don't celebrate and lionise those Russians who talk about NATO enlargement right now, we celebrate and lionise rightly those Russians who go out onto the streets to protest against their state's war. They're the heroes with courage. And so similarly in the West, without having any illusions in Russian imperialism, pointing out that all of the dangerous things that, that, that the West is doing all around the world, that our states are doing, that we might be able to have more direct impact impact on is especially important in a very troubling moment when to point out the things that our state's imperialist rivals are doing risks a kind of dangerous boosterism for our state's imperialism and its imperialist allies which only makes the situation worse so that's a very difficult conflagration to engage for those of us who believe as i do that neither imperial bloc is 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 good news and also who believe as i do that that that, that not all bad things in eastern europe are created by nato and the west and that russian imperialism is an important part of that picture i mean ukraine is a kind of classic site of 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 semi-colonial intrigue where its economy is caught between two oligarchic capitalist factions, pro-Western and pro-Russian, each seeking to extract rent uh, from it and also each seeking geopolitically to position. So there's not one good guy and one bad guy and there's also lots of domestic history involved in in, in Ukrainian nationalism. So it's not just all from the outside at all. And we talk about that a lot in the essay. So there's there's a difficulty in balancing the awareness that this is a world order without good guys in any positions of great power and authority, and also the knowledge that talking about the bad guys far away is increasingly a language of boosting the dangerous and violent bad guys here at home. And that's a problem that the Russian left faces, and it's a problem that the Western left faces. It's true. So just to give you an example, the first Russian member of the Duma to come out against this war in Ukraine, uh, Mikhail Matviev, elected on the Communist Party ticket, but with a more kind of left-wing politics than, than most of that party, to be honest, had voted a few days before he came out against it, had voted for the war on the basis that it was just a defensive operation to help Russian speakers in Donbass. And we in the West could say that was absurd. How could you be so naive? But of course, if you're flooded constantly with propaganda about the genuine 
oppression of Russian speakers by often far-right militias fighting in the Ukrainian military, it's important to recognize that that propaganda in Russia isn't innocent, that though many of those claims are true, it's being used to further an agenda of Russian expansionism. And it's very difficult to prize, to, to say both this thing is true and also it's being used for these aggressive aims. And, and it's the same, the same thing happens in the West. It's absolutely true that Ukrainians are now being bombarded and massacred by Russia, and we should be in solidarity with them. And there are things we can do to be in concrete solidarity with them, like demanding that every Ukrainian refugee is let mm. in uh, uh, when they're fleeing Russian attacks, like demanding that Ukraine's noxious private debts that Western countries imposed on it in the 90s are uh, cancelled, are forgiven. Um, there are really simple, concrete things we can do, but when we instead start pushing a language of sanctions or of military escalation, um, we're not allying with people who want to help Ukrainians. We're allying with people who want to push an inter-imperialist clash and who find Ukrainians convenient victims for now, but they don't care any more really about Ukrainians than they do about Yemenis or Palestinians or any of the people they bombard. <laughs> 